All right, good morning, everyone. Um, hopefully you can hear me okay. Um, yeah, I just want to welcome you if you're watching um, the live stream on YouTube or you're here today. Um, yeah, it's great that we can join together and, and worship the Lord. Thank you, Ian and the team, for, for leading in, in worship songs. And it's great to open God's Word. It's, it's great to open it. And, you know, these are not just words on the page that we're going to read today. These are, you know, that we read in the, the Bible that the, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, over the split between um, bone and marrow. And, and, you know, as we gather today, um, you know, let, let's open in prayer and ask the Lord just to speak to our hearts. Um, you know, Ben, Pastor Ben's just having a, a well-earned break for a, a few weeks. So he asked whether I could fill in for, for one of the Sunday mornings. Um, I think Bob Roche is going to speak next week. And so Ben will, will come back in a few weeks' time uh, to continue our study in, in the book of Job. Um, so let's pray. And as we do, um, let's just turn to Luke chapter 9, the book of Luke chapter 9. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, it's so great to be able to come into your presence, Lord, that um, you're pure and you're holy, that you're awesome. And there's nothing, Lord, of, of worth um, in and of, of us, God. Um, but through the, the blood of Christ, through his death and resurrection, um, that you're making us holy, um, that you're made us acceptable to come into your presence, to worship and sing to you, to even be able to call you Father um, and have that relationship with you is such a privilege. And so, God, we, we pray, God, that as we, we read your word, um, touch our hearts, help us to apply it, help us understand and apply what we read, whatever it may be. Help us desire to be shaped more into the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would just be honored here this morning um, and be honored in our hearts. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, learning something new um, can be fun, but it can also be challenging. You know, I remember when I was eight years old that my mom um, signed me up to the local soccer club. You know, I'd never played soccer before. She thought it'd be a good thing for me, and she signed me up. And, you know, to, to learn about soccer, I, I would attend the weekly training session with all of my teammates, and we learned how to, you know, pass the ball and trap the ball and kick it. Um, we learned how to tackle, and we, we did lots of running. I just remember we did lots of running to get, to get really fit. Um, and week in and week out, we did that. And then, you know, game day finally arrived. We got to go on the soccer field. And, you know, do you think that we were a really competent and effective world-drilled team? I remember I was eight, we were eight years old, you know. Absolutely not. We were, we were terrible. Um, you know, would we, did we stay in the positions we were assigned? No, you know. Yeah, as an eight-year-old, you know, you think as much as you get these skills, you, you think like an eight-year-old and you naturally revert to, I want to chase that ball wherever it goes. And, uh, yeah, you've got this group of, you know, 20 kids chasing this ball and there's this whole field that could be used. Um, you know, it just became a big mob and, and, you know, we're tackling each other and tackling our own players and you know, you're meant to be kicking the ball up that way. And, you know, when you're eight, you don't care about that. You just go, I just want to smash that ball. And I don't even care what direction I'm facing. I'm going to hit that ball and kick it. And sometimes it would go the right way. Sometimes it would go back towards our goal. But, you know, the, the, the tactical side of the game isn't something that as an eight-year-old you, you naturally learn. It's not something that 
um, kids can easily understand and apply. And it takes a competent coach to explain and develop this aspect within, you know, within a child so that that child can grow and learn how to play you know, the game um, more properly. You know, and so a competent coach um, you know, will suppress a child's tendency to do what comes naturally, to chase a ball or just kick every ball that comes their way, um, in order to get the best result from that player. And the same thing ha even happens with adults. You know, I remember as a, you know, I, I kind of learned about golf as an adult and learning how to swing a club. And there's things that you just naturally think that I'm just going to grab this club and smash that ball and then it doesn't go where you want it to. And the coach goes, you know, you need to relax. You need to, there's a bit of finesse that's involved. And same with cooking, you know, when I first cooked muffins and the recipe goes, don't overmix the batter, and you look at it and go, well, that doesn't look right. I'll keep mixing, and you mix it too much, and you don't get the texture of the muffin that is expected. It's not fluffy, and it becomes too firm. And so we can bring our prior notions of what's right into these new scenarios and situations, but they're not the right things. And similarly, the Bible makes a distinction between our old ways of thinking and our practices and our new ways of thinking and practices. You know, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are now citizens of this kingdom of God. And there are ways that as a citizen, we're expected to, to think and do. And it's easy to bring our natural ways of thinking into that. Um, but, you know, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you know, Believers are exhorted um, in this manner to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And similarly to those earthly examples I mentioned before, in Luke chapter 9 today, you know, we're going to look at some of these new ways that don't come naturally to us, that seem counterintuitive to how we traditionally lived our lives. However, you know, these new ways characterize living in the kingdom of God, and they enable us to truly honor and serve the true and everlasting king. Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start at verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they'd come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. So they come down from the mountain previously. So Jesus and Peter, James, and John were up the mountain. That's where Jesus was transfigured. Um, earlier in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 29, it says that his appearance of Jesus' face was old and his robe became white and glistening. So these disciples got a glimpse of the glorious Jesus rather than the Jesus whose glory was hidden behind um, this humble form of a man. And Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah and they appear in glory. And it says that he, he, he spoke about his death in Jerusalem. So what, you know, what a wonderful moment. You know, the, the disciples and Jesus, a handful of disciples are up there. And you know, I can understand Peter's desire to want to kind of extend that experience and build these tabernacles for them to stay there. Um, but that wasn't what God's plan was. But now Jesus and the disciples, they've, they've come back from the mountain, and here they are confronted by this great crowd who want their needs to be met. And you know, even prior to the, Mount of, the, the transfiguration, you know, Jesus had fed the 5,000. Um, he healed a lot of people. And so you can imagine... Just this immense size of this crowd of people who want to follow Jesus, who want to come and just see him and hear him and, and touch him. 
Verse 38, suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So out of the midst of this massive crowd comes this man desperate for his son to be healed. He's imploring, he's begging desperately for his son, his only child, who's an epileptic. And there's his son, battered and bruised, you know, from each violent seizure that, that, he, that he goes through. Um, can you sense the father's desperation? Um, our, our dog, Loki, our, our cavoodle, you know, recently um, has had a number of stays in the, in the vet hospital because he's been suffering these, um, what's called cluster seizures. So one seizure after another after another. And, you know, in those moments where he's going through that, you know, I felt completely helpless. Um, I've wanted to intervene. You know, I kind of wish that was happening to me and not to him. And so if I'm feeling that anguish about a dog, imagine what this man's feeling about his only child. And so he implores Jesus and he says, look on my son. He's saying, just look on him, Jesus. Just, just a look from you is enough to heal my son. Your disciples couldn't heal him. They couldn't do it. But I know you can. But praise God, you know, that we can run to him when we're desperate. When we feel we have no hope. But, you know, we don't need to let our situation become desperate before we come to Jesus. We can, have, we can come to him at any time to present our concerns and worries. You know, when Loki was sick, our dog was sick, you know, we immediately went straight to the vet for help. You know, we didn't you know, wait around and try to look up what we could do, but we knew where to find help. And similarly, running to Jesus, that should be our first step in time of need, in, in, not just when we're desperate, but any time of need, not, not as a last resort. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You know, that idea of, Lord, I can't carry this burden anymore. You know, this is too much for me. I don't have the strength. Um, but I know you can carry me. And so it's marvelous because God does care for us. He isn't some impersonal, unfeeling deity who is ignorant of our day-to-day -day lives. You know, but rather he is personal. He knows us by name. He is compassionate towards us. He is accessible and he's mighty. And the word mighty means he, he's able to do something. He has the ability to, to do something. And he does. He changes lives and he changes circumstances for his glory, for his purposes. But he also cares for us. How awesome is that? So even if we're not experiencing any desperate situation, you know, we can still lift up others in, in prayer. You know, whether... You know, our brothers and sisters who've shared it, who are going through a tough period, who've shared things through the, the email, the prayer chain that goes around, or who've shared things here amongst us as we've been fellowshipping. Yeah, we've got the blessing of being able to lift each other up in prayer when people are going through those desperate and tough times and bring them to the Lord and, and, and seek the Lord and say, Lord, intervene, bring, bring healing, bring salvation. Verse 41. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. 
Jesus had previously sent the 12 out to preach the gospel, preach the kingdom of God. He'd given them power and authority to cast out demons. He'd given them the power to be able to heal. But in this case, what, whatever they did had no effect. Um, the parallel of this passage in, in Matthew 7, uh, sorry, Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel in chapter 17, sorry, you know, gives more insight into this rebuke of the disciples. In uh, Matthew 17, verse 19, it says that the disciples privately asked Jesus, why couldn't they cast out this, ge- this demon? And Jesus replies, because of your unbelief. And he later says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So it wasn't their lack of effort. It wasn't their lack of numbers. You know, there was 12 of them hanging around. That was the issue in getting this demon out of this person. It was a lack of faith. It was a lack of faith in Jesus that, to believe that he would do what he said he would do or that he can, that he can do what he said he would do. Um, so maybe the disciples had fallen into routine of, of casting out demons. You know, they've had this, they've gone out, they've been ministering, they've cast out demons, they've healed, and here's another one, and they've just thought, it's all right, guys, I've got this covered. We've done this many times before. They've tried to do it. Nothing. And Jesus calls them perverse because he goes, you guys know what you, sh- you, c- you should be doing, but you didn't do it. Um, and so what is it that they should have been doing that they didn't do? And it's in Matthew chapter 70 that gives us that clue where he says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Um, you know, I remember when, when, we, when you buy a car, when you, you buy a car, um, and at first you diligently maintain it, you, you clean it, you, you check the tires and you check the oil and you make sure it has a regular service and you take a great deal of care about this car. Um, but over time, you know, you take that performance for granted and you go, yeah, you know, maybe I don't need to check the oil this time. Maybe I could skip a service. I could save the money. And we become less diligent. Um, but eventually what will happen, you know, that, that car will, won't perform as well as when you first got it. It will break down. And so you go and see a mechanic and you say, you know what, this car's not working as well as when I first got it. And once the mechanic say, he says, well... You know, you need to refocus on getting this thing regularly serviced. You know, you need to keep doing the maintenance like when you first got the car. And this is similar to the disciples. You know, they've, they've been empowered to do God's work, but they've drifted away from the necessary things that, that Christ wanted them to do. And so when he says you need to, it's by prayer and fasting... It's not that they need to do prayer and fasting to make them superhuman, like you know, you go to the gym and get stronger, because if I get stronger, then I'm going to beat these, these bigger, stronger demons. No, but prayer and fasting puts them into a pose of being humbled before the Lord, of being dependent on the Lord, of seeking the Lord and saying, well, I'm going to put my faith in you and I'm going to be dependent on you. And it was in that situation where they needed to be dependent on the Lord that it wasn't that that intimacy wasn't there, and you know the disciples were they were around Jesus every day, but they still fell into unbelief. And you know we need to be careful that in our relationship with Jesus, that it doesn't become routine. It doesn't become just this set of recurring activities that we do. That's not a relationship. You know we need to be careful that you know our familiarity with Jesus doesn't result in a loss of 
you know, intimacy and causing him to become just a bystander. Yeah, 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 Jesus is there. You, you know, that's, that's not what he desires. You know, he should be the focus of our worship and the focus of our affections. He should be, you know, our source of strength. Um, and, you know, if we've drifted from that, come back and pray, come back and fast, come back before him and, and put him at that place where he deserves to be. You know, can we truly say this morning that we love and trust Jesus? That we experience that closeness, that intimacy as we spend time in his word and prayer? You know, but, you know, praise God. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to get to know us. And he wants, to, he wants that close communion with us. So let's, let's avail ourselves of that. Um, okay, verse 42. And as he was still... Coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And in this particular case, the boy's epilepsy was caused by the demon. Uh, not every disease we read about in the New Testament was disease was, was caused by a demon. Um, in this particular case, it was. Um, but we see Jesus' all of apparent authority to rebuke the demon, to remove the demon, and to heal this boy. Um, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's the Lord we serve, right? He's old, he has the ultimate power and authority. He's not a weak Lord. He's, he's all-powerful, all-authoritative. Verse 43, And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words and sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of Ben. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So they were dwelling, you know, the crowds looking at this thing. It's marvelous. This demon, this great demon's been caught out. This boy's healed. And it was a marvelous thing. But Jesus brings the disciples back and says, hey, you know, don't get carried away in that. This is the plan that God's got for me. I'm, I'm going to be betrayed. Now, in Matthew's gospel, again, the parallel passage in chapter 17, it adds this little bit of extra detail in verse 23 where it says, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. This is not the picture that the disciples had of the Messiah. You know, the Messiah was going to be this conquering king, drive out the Romans, bring glory and success to Israel. And here's Jesus saying, you know what, but I'm going to be betrayed and killed, but I'm going to rise again. And for some of the disciples, that would have, you know, we think about the 12 apostles, but Jesus had more followers. He had disciples that they would have been dismayed. They would have said, well, that's not what I signed up for and would have stopped following him. You know, but however, after his resurrection, you know, the disciples could look back at these words. They could see that Jesus had to be betrayed. He had to suffer to fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah. And he had to suffer and die to bring salvation from sin. So although they were afraid and they were sorrowful now, the disciples would boldly rejoice in Jesus' resurrection later as they reflected back on this. And, you know, this reminds us that, you know, not everything God says to us is palatable. You know, sometimes you want God to say nice stuff to us and it's all going to be nice. But sometimes God says stuff that we go, God, that doesn't, oh, that doesn't quite gel with me. You know, he might say something to us that 
pieces of our heart where it's not, uh, he, he's a, there's a correction or a rebuke for us. And he says things that are not palatable, but he always says things that are true. And I, I praise God for that, that he's, he, he has that integrity with us to tell us what we, we need to hear. And this is what he, he's saying to the disciples. He's telling them what they need to hear, even though they didn't understand it at that time. Verse 46, then, then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to him, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Yeah, it's funny, you know, despite the lack of success of the disciples to, dr to drive out that demon, here they are talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And, you know, Jesus has spoken to them just then about his betrayal. He's, he's spoken to them about something that's pretty heavy, pretty sad. And, you know, they're more concerned about their own personal status, you know, and I can imagine, we can imagine the disciples, right, comparing notes about the different miracles and the healings that they've done and, yeah, hey, I, hey I, I healed you know, two blind men and a paralytic and one of the other disciples. Hey, that's nothing. I, I cast out ten demons. And, you know, and then you know, Peter, hey, I was on the mountain. I saw Jesus glorified. You know, and this kind of outdoing each other. And, um, you know, and, and there's Jesus. You know, he's observing them. And you, you can picture them saying, you know, amongst, oh, they're talking amongst themselves, thinking, hey, you know, let's ask Jesus. Let's see what he thinks. Let's see which miracle he thinks is the most memorable that he would call out. Um, but it says, you know, Jesus perceived the thought of their heart. He knew their motives. He knew what they were thinking. He understood. And what he does, he places a little child next to them, someone who in that society had, had little importance. Um, and he says, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. So to receive a little child in Jesus' name was to love and accept this child exactly as Jesus would have. You know? So this child would have been created in God's image, precious in God's sight. And Jesus is going, if you're going to treat a child like that, you know, you're effectively honoring me, you're treating me, you're receiving me in the same way, and you're giving me that same honor. He goes on to say, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all will be great. And so ultimately the act of receiving a child in Jesus' name is, is effectively honoring to God. And you know, by associating himself with this humble child, Jesus is indirectly pointing to himself and saying, you know what, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest in the kingdom. Um, whether the disciples understood that or not is a different question, but... Yeah, there is only one who's great in the kingdom, and, that, and that's, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verse 16, it says, you know, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. So where do we set our minds? You know, do we focus only on the things which are lofty and noteworthy? Or, you know, do we consider those amongst us who are lowly and simple? You know, in the kingdom of God, you know, it's humility that is important. To have a true opinion on ourselves, not elevating ourselves to something that we aren't. Let's be, you know, let's be humble. Verse 50. 
also verse 49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for who is he who is not against us is on our side. So the disciples are going, but Jesus, they're not part of our group. They're not following the script. We do it like this and they're doing it like that. They've got a different approach. And Jesus goes, hey, you know, I'm still being glorified. Demons are still being cast out in my name. Yeah, as long as Jesus' name was being proclaimed, you know, that's all that matters. Yeah, Romans chapter 14 verse 19 says, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. So in the kingdom of God, you know, let's be peacemakers. You know, you know, if a church is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, like we can fellowship with them. We can treat them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can encourage them. We can edify them. Despite our churches might be slightly different. Um, you know, let's not try to find reasons to separate us from our fellow believers. Um, you know, above all, we want to be for Christ, right? Nothing else. Um, let's be for, for Christ. Verse 51, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Yeah, Jesus had a plan to go to Jerusalem to, fa to face his death. And that wouldn't have been an easy task. You know, he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. He resolved to do it. However, on the way, the Samaritans rejected him because they were aware of his journey to Jerusalem. And as you know, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get on. And just Jesus' association with going to Jerusalem, they said, no, we don't want anything to do with you. And, you know, James and John, like they do probably what a lot of us tend to want to naturally do. We go, oh, I'm offended. Or you've offended Christ. Ah, revenge. Let's, let's get back at them. They're not worthy. They're not worthy of your forgiveness. But Jesus rebukes them because their intent goes completely against why Jesus came, that he states here to bring salvation. And, you know, throughout the Bible, we see the mercy of God and he's holding off of judgment to allow people to repent. It happens a lot. Whether it's the hundred years in Noah's time where he's building the ark to give people a time to repent or leading up to the great flood or, you know, in, in the book of Revelation where we constantly see as the judgments come down that there's a remnant of people that God doesn't destroy, that he doesn't touch. Why? To make them suffer more? No, to give them opportunity to repent, to turn. And, you know, I... I think about the, how God's mercy is played in our life, that he, he revealed to us his love for us, that he touched our hearts and helped us, gave us the faith to, to respond and receive salvation. And how blessed are we? So if God shows that mercy to us, you know, we want our character to reflect the character of God, which is mercy. We want to have that mercy to those around us. 
Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 19 says, Repay no one for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. It is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, if we get offended, God doesn't want us to seek vengeance on others. You know, we can take that peaceable path. You know, we can leave any vengeance, if it's even necessary, it's in God's hands. Um, if our king is merciful, then let's desire to reflect that merciful character with those around us and forgiving wrongs um, against us. Okay. Verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So as Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem, this man comes and approaches him, and he's keen. He wants to follow Christ. You think, great, that's awesome. Um, he's got this bold intent. But Jesus explains to this man, unlike foxes and birds that have regular places to live, hey, I'm just completely trusting God to provide somewhere for me to stay. You know, the life of a disciple, hey, it might seem exciting with all these healings and these miracles, but, you know, it's a life lived by faith without the regular comforts. And, you know, the question here to this man is, you know, are you willing to forego and to live by faith? You know, that's the same question to us as disciples of Jesus Christ. What are you willing to forego to follow Christ? Are you willing to live by faith? You know, too often, and I know in my own life, I can live by sight. I can live by my bank balance, or I can live by my, I have, an, I have employment. And it's not to say these are not good things, but that's not where my hope and my trust should be. My hope and trust, it should be in Christ to provide. And those things are just evidences of, of his goodness. That's not where my faith should lie. Verse 59, then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. So Jesus approaches this man that he thinks is ready to follow him, but the man effectively says, not yet. Now the idea is behind this man's response is that you know, his father is still some years away from dying, from needing to be buried. It's not like it's just going to happen tomorrow, but he's some ways off. And Jesus' response to him is, let the dead bury their dead. He's saying to him, look, there's people here who aren't following me. They're spiritually dead. Let them, let them deal with the, this, the family burial and deal with these things of life. You know, you're, alive, you're spiritually alive. You, you, you can follow me and you can go and preach the kingdom of God to those who need to hear the gospel. And that takes a higher priority. And so that question to him, to this man, is, will you follow now? You know, and that's the same question to us. Are we ready to follow now? You know, not next week or the week after, but whatever God's putting in your heart now and he's calling you to do, is he wanting you to do that now and act upon it? You know, I think about the, you know, things where I, where I, I hesitate and... Um, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, I always hesitated was, um, 
you know, going on roller coasters. You know, growing up, I never liked roller coasters. I'd, I'd avoid amusement parks. And I, don't, I can't remember even where I was. And it looked like, one day it just looked like fun. I just thought, that looked really good. That looks really good. And, and, you know, rocked up and I assessed the ride. I said, do I think I can handle that? How many loops and the acceleration? I thought, yeah, I'm ready. I'm going to go for it. You know, it was the best thing ever. It was great. Loved it. And, um, you know, I was with, with Ali and we were on a holiday and I said, Ali, come on, let's sit at the front. Let's sit at the front of this roller coaster. It's so cool. Um, but, you know, it, we can have a hesitancy about something that isn't real, that is, is, is in our mind. And we can, I had this hesitancy about roller coasters, that they're fearful and something to be avoided. And then when I did it, I was like, that's pretty cool. And, and have, you know, I won't say addicted, but I, I enjoy it. And, you know, with Christ, you know, when he calls us, we can have that hesitancy, that fear of, oh, I don't know what he wants me to do. I, 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 he could lead me into something that's weird. But he gives us the strength and the ability to do the things he calls us to do. He absolutely, you know, and I look back at my life, as most of you will, where God's used you in some way. And you look back and go, I didn't know. I had no idea I could do that. I didn't know I could have that impact on a person's life. Because you couldn't, because Christ was living through you and enabling you to do that. But it is so awesome. And so if he's calling you to do something now, I encourage you to act on it. Verse 61, and another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. So we have this last man who meets him on the journey to Jerusalem who's got a number of household members that he wants to farewell first. But the difference between this guy and the previous guy is this guy goes, look, these people are in my house now. I need to say goodbye to them. And even though it seems like it could be a short farewell, it could extend to a long farewell. Who knows how long it's going to be? Maybe there's a feast to, to, to say goodbye. And a short delay will become a long delay. Now, a plow is a farm, for those who don't know, it's a farming implement used to turn over soil to, 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 to get the dead stuff on top and get the fresh stuff from underneath and churn it up so we get the nutrients mixed around. And, you know, it's pulled behind some oxen and it requires a hand to steer it. You know, you know yeah, you could let the animals go, but you want these, the furrows to be straight and consistent so you get the most the best effect and in the same way that when you ride a bike and if you're looking you're steering and you're looking elsewhere what happens your bike tends to go where you look even if you want to steer somewhere else sometimes you, you, you your hands just tend to go where you look and it's the same with this plow that if you don't look where you go when you're steering this plow you're not going to get those straight consistent furrows that is the most effective way of refreshing and this field. And Jesus is going, hey, you know, you can't... If you're going to follow me, you're going to be focused on the thing I need you to do. You can't do both. You can't do that effectively if you're thinking about the world, if you're thinking about farewells, and, you're not, and I need you to, to share the gospel. And so the question here for this man is, where are you going to focus? 
Are you going to focus on Christ alone and have your eyes set towards the goal and the, and the task that he's got in, in hand for you? And so for all these three guys, so the first guy who, what are you going to forego? The second guy, are you going to follow now? And this guy, are you going to just prioritize me and focus on me at the expense, you know, and, and the task I've got for you? Jesus doesn't put that in the way of these guys to deter them. He puts it in front of them to say, really think about what you're being called to do. So there's no surprises, so you know what's expected. That you don't get in thinking it's going to be, you know, a life of luxury, a bed of roses. And they get, and they get these surprises and go, I didn't think that was going to be what following Christ was going to be like. But, you know, as I assess the calling of Christ on my life, the immediacy, what am I going to forego? Can I singly focus on him? There is no comparison between that decision versus anything else. And, and I trust for most of you, you came to that same conclusion as well, that the cost of discipleship is more than justified, that the things that I've received from Christ far outweigh anything that I could potentially consider to be a cost to me. The salvation I receive, the peace that I have with God, the joy in my heart, the things that are too numerous to, to name. And the blessing upon blessing that God gives um, to have that fellowship with him is, is, is beyond measure. So I'm going to just conclude there today. You know, and, you know, it's been a, a bit of a, a, a strange chapter, like different things. You know, not a, but these are things about the kingdom of God and things about how we live and how we think and... What are, the, what are my old ways of thinking that are how I naturally think? And, you know, is God speaking to your heart today and saying, hey, whether it be about mercy or whether it be about where you turn to in desperation or humility or the intimacy that you've got with me that you think I can just be there on the side and not central to your life? What is that natural way that we think that God goes, hey, I need to renew your mind. I need to transform you so that you will know what the what the, you can approve what the will of god is per per romans chapter 12 okay um so let's close there in prayer and as the worship team comes up um but you know christ has given us everything we need to dwell in his kingdom you know but it requires us to have that faith and that obedience to respond to him and he's speaking to our hearts, hopefully speaking to your heart today and prompting you through his Holy Spirit. So let's come to him now and, and just seek his strength. God, we thank you that we are citizens of, of your kingdom, Lord, that um, you are our eternal king, our almighty king, that you're, you're a king that loves us, that cares for us, that you're a king that provides all that we need to, to dwell in your kingdom. And Lord, we, we do desire your strength, God, to, to change, to be transformed. And that starts with just coming to you in faith and availing ourselves of the strength that you can provide. So, Lord, whatever you are putting on our heart this morning where we, we can grow and change, we pray that you would truly have your way in us, Lord, that we, we want to be disciples, not next week or the week. We want to be your disciples now, faithfully following you. We want to have that just that singular focus on you, 
to honor you, to do the thing that you, you've called us to be doing. And we, um, we just want more of you, God, in our life and less of us. And so, Lord, in the same way that a, a coach suppresses the, the, the natural tendencies of a child to do what they want to do on a soccer field, Lord, we know that you can suppress those natural things in us, Lord, that drive our behaviors and that you could you will fill us more with your with your holy spirit that your word would be become more living and active god in our hearts today so thank you again lord again for your love thank you for all you've blessed us with particularly for your son jesus who for us lord he steadfastly set his face to jerusalem to suffer and die for us but we thank you we can rejoice in his resurrection. We can rejoice in the new life that he brings to us. And we thank you now and we bless you um, in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.